to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. A landmark event occurred on May 26, 1981, when a marine electronics warfare jet slammed onto the wrong part of the USS Nimitz flight deck, ending in a ball of flames near the bow of the giant carrier. It crashed into several other parked planes, causing over $100 million in damage. 14 men were killed and 48 were injured. Autopsies showed that six out of the 14 men killed smoked marijuana heavily or used it very shortly before the fiery crash. They were all flight deck crew and therefore did not directly cause the accident. The official naval inquiry stated that the accident was a result of the drug abuse of the enlisted crewmen. It is said the impaired crew failed to follow procedures that could have prevented the extent of the crash. Later, it was found that the pilot may also have been impaired. His body was found to have 11 times the recommended dosage of bromopheramine, an antihistamine, an illegal drug by the crew, and a legal drug by the pilot. In any case, drugs were involved in the catastrophe. As a result of the incident, on September 15, 1986, President Ronald Reagan issued Executive Order Number 12564, instituting a zero-tolerance policy that stands until this day. It applies to all of the armed services and federal employees both on and off duty. This was the birth of the mandatory drug testing across all U.S. service personnel. A couple years later, in 1988, Congress weighed in on the matter and passed the Drug-Free Workplace Act requiring some federal contractors and federal grantees to agree to a drug-free workplace as a condition of receiving a federal grant. ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, part of the Executive Office of the President, and my previous employer, is responsible in coordinating drug-free workplace. And so, part of my portfolio assignments as Chief Medical Officer of ONDCP was working with the leaders of SAMHSA Division of Workplace Programs, Ron Flegel and Shane Hyden. This dynamic duo briefed us and told us we needed to hold a FACA, on the guidelines for drug testing on hair samples. Of course we will hold a FACA, no problem. I get to hold a FACA, how cool is that? I never held a FACA before or even attended a FACA. As a matter of fact, I don't even know what a FACA is, but I was excited to hold one nonetheless. First show enthusiasm and then ask Google, what's a FACA? Federal Advisory Committee, Act 1972 to ensure advisory committees formed over the years is objective and accessible to the public. So we had a FACA, a meeting that is very formal and scripted. And it was cool. And ONDCP gave me new experiences every day that I am still grateful for. The coolest part of working with SAMHSA's Division on Workplace Programs was learning from the Drug Testing Advisory Board. I had the honor of giving opening remarks at one of these meetings and listened to cutting edge presentations on the high percentage of fake urine samples and cutoff values for various drugs in testing and positive drug trends across government and civilian employees, as well as hearing about newly released research on clinical drug trials involving hemp and CBD. The cutoff and tolerance of a positive drug screen in an employee depends on their position. People who work in safety-sensitive positions have an absolute zero tolerance. That includes the Department of Defense, Department of Transportation, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I don't think we want people who carry deadly weapons, fly a plane, or work with nukes to be using drugs. 
With that storytelling introduction on drug testing, let's hear our question from Dr. Merchant. Hi, Dr. Lev. It was nice working with you the other shift. The computer system was hacked and we were using old school paper. My name is Arjun Merchant and I'm an intern physician. My question is whether there is a movement to include fentanyl in all drug tests given the rise in fentanyl deaths. Thanks. Arjun, it was indeed a pleasure working with you the other shift. And as it was a relatively slow shift, we had the opportunity to chat and talk about drugs and addiction, a passionate subject of mine. And to answer your question, yes, there is a big movement to include fentanyl in all drug tests. But to give you a more complete answer, I thought we would invite a high truths drug testing expert to our program, Joe McGuire. Joe is our high truths expert for the day, and I met her in Las Vegas years ago when we were both invited speakers on the harms of marijuana. As there were only a handful of people speaking publicly on the harms at that time, we immediately had a bond. As a physician, I am well-versed on the harms of cannabis on the body, but I had no idea on how drugs impact the workforce and industry. Joe McGuire is a known advocate for safe and drug-free workplaces, families, and communities for over 10 years with experience in drug and alcohol testing industry. She represented the drug testing industry in the United Nations General Assembly on World Drug Agreements. In Colorado, she served on the governor's task force to regulate the marijuana legalization initiative due to her expertise in workplace drug and alcohol testing. She is a highly requested national speaker, writer, and policy advisor, and her bio is available on the High Truth show notes. Joe McGuire, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Happy to be here. And how fun it is to connect again. Yes. Uh, we met in Las Vegas at a marijuana conference. And Correct. <laughs> remember that? And yes. I didn't see you for a while. And then you popped in at the White House at ONDCP. Um, yeah. And it's like we had to take a double take. It's like, wait, I know what you. What are you doing here? <laughs> right. What are you doing here? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I guess we are meant to be working in parallel together. I agree so much. We we really um, both have a passion for what we do. And I think there's some serious intersection there. Yes. And so I'm really, I'm, I'm so happy that we connect, not just for this uh, podcast, but uh, professionally and friendship-wise, I think we, we have a, a bond. Um, Agreed. So- and thank you for what you're doing with your podcast. I think it's so important. And I'm just thrilled to get to be this, you know, tiny little a moment in time with you, but I, I really appreciate it because we've got to educate the public. And so thank you so much, Dr. Love. Oh, and thank you for what we do. We're, you know, partners in this. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell our audience, how did you become a drug testing expert? Well, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird journey that I had, um, but I was working in school safety in the state of Colorado with a program that was Um, put into place post-Columbine, and it was actually a response to that. And uh, so some of our audience may not remember what Columbine is. uh, Yeah, the um, it was one of the worst school attacks in the history of our nation um, that happened in the early um, 2000s, I guess we want to say, or actually maybe Gosh, I'm forgetting the date, but I think that um, it was just so significant. It really changed everything. It was the event that started all of the um, school safety drills uh, as far as uh, lockdown, uh, active shooter and all of those things. And it, it just had ripple effects all over the world. And um that was the first time that schools really started doing these, you know, lock the doors and, and you have to have a security badge to enter and um, all of those things. I mean, it was, it was extremely significant. And um, so we, we really, um, we we had this program started by our attorney general and it, it was a direct response toward educating about warning signs, telling someone, responding when someone does tell someone, because, you know, you get that thing where what we had with Columbine was that, um, and it's usually referred to formally as the Columbine school massacre, um, you know, two dozen people lost their lives. And so, uh, that, the whole, um, 
uh, the, the finding when there was a, you know, there was a council convened to study it and, and to find, investigate and find out if it could have been prevented. And they came back and said, yes, 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 and yes. Because these guys, um, they, they told people left and right. They were bragging and nobody took it seriously. So part of my job was to travel all over the state and even sometimes around the country occasionally um, to talk about those warning signs and to educate um, parents and law enforcement and teachers and school personnel and administrators and, and whatnot about um, how you take something seriously and how you report and how you get a response. So we, we set up this, um, this uh, anonymous toll-free hotline in the state of Colorado where every call got a response from kids that would call and then was educating the kids on when to use it and why. And what we saw, we started getting reports on all kinds of risk behaviors, um, suicide attempts and kids with suicidal ideology and uh, telling their friends, because that was one of the warning signs, right? Um, is that um, Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold also uh, had that suicidal ideation. And so they were willing to, you know, risk their lives for this event that they were going to do. That was their plan. So that's a warning sign. So we were seeing, you know, suicides prevented and, and uh, further school attacks prevented and just these amazing things. The program is still operational. It was just, I mean, I love it to this day. But um, when we started out, of course, we were grant funded and trying to um, find a way to sing for our supper to, to keep the program going. But as we, so two things happen as a result of this program, um, I did a lot of cross intersection with risk behaviors in all facets. And we really started seeing, um, uh, kids reporting their fellow students using drugs and alcohol and um, dangerous behaviors were ensuing. And so it was our job to respond to that. And so we got involved in some community prevention efforts and having those conversations. And a lady that lived in my community that owned a drug testing company, she started showing up and saying, you know, parents, you can have a deterrent and, and drug test your kids. And they, we, we also like at the same time, we had a couple of, um, high schools, more than a couple, we had a few high schools in our Colorado community that were having drug epidemics. I mean, we had a black tar heroin ring busted at one high school. We were seeing um, all kinds of drugs that were coming to the surface. And so we started responding with, with our hotline, you know, if you see something, tell someone, and then uh, working with this drug testing company, like here's something. So we started meshing together. And so that was thing one. We, we were coordinating and, and just doing these community education events and parent events together. And then the second thing that happened when the economy just dropped out um, around, uh, you know, 9-11 and all of that happened, um, we, we lost our funding. I mean, we lost a lot of our funding. Um, it, it actually didn't happen for a while. It was, it was a while later. Um, so around 2009, 2010, uh, round in there, um, our, our granting foundation came and said, we've got to cut all staff except for um, the, the executive director to keep the program alive. And we love you. We're sorry, but you have to go. So I floated my resume out to our board members and um, I ended up this lady that was doing drug testing. She had become a board member of ours and she hired me immediately. And it's kind of funny um, when I got into it, um, she's like, I want to keep doing this community prevention. I don't want that to go away. Let, let's bring you in and we'll take it on in our company and we'll make sure that keeps going. So will you come over here and keep doing that and, and we'll just expand? And I'm like, yes, I get to keep doing what I'm doing. And this is so great. <laughs> so I was there for a couple of weeks and we're putting all these plans in place and we're, you know, setting up events and doing all this awesome stuff. And, and I'll never forget that she came to me one day and she, she's like, um, so when are you going to actually start doing the drug testing part? And I was like, what? <laughs> and she's like, well, that, you know, is a major part of the job and you actually have to do that as well. And I was like, I, I do. And so I was a little disheartened at first. Um, but then I, she sent me to training and, and certification and 
And I learned very quickly the value and the importance of drug testing to transportation safety in our nation and workplace safety and then um, child and youth safety. And, and then, of course, it, it happened that very, very shortly after that, I mean, weeks, um, I learned that my middle son was deep into addiction and I had missed the signs. I was very naive about it. I didn't know that that his life had taken that path until he had a suicide attempt. And so here I am involved in all these things and it and it comes into my home and uh, it really changed my life. Then then my work became my passion for my child. Um, not just something that I went to do every day from eight to five. So that's kind of the beginning of it. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of how it all started. And fast forward, you are um, a drug testing expert and going around uh, the nation and, and speaking about prevention and, and uh, testing is a very important prevention tool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so when I was doing that job, a lot of employers in Colorado were saying, how do we handle medical marijuana? What do we do? And part of our universe is helping employers write drug and alcohol test policies. So I started, you know, studying up on it and learning about it and going, well, you keep doing your policy and you keep doing your testing program. Well, but I had done that for a few years and, you know, had helped the Colorado Constructors Association and Association of General Contractors and all these different things. And then when Colorado passed Amendment 64, and I was still involved in community drug prevention. So some of these things all went together. But when we passed Amendment 64 and went toward legal marijuana for, you know, adult use, um, the governor's office put me on the task force to represent employers' rights to test in the regulation um, framework of this whole thing. And uh, that's when the blinders really came off and I really saw the depth of this movement and uh, it really propelled me. You're right. As an expert, I've been all over the world talking about this uh, for eight years now. And it's just now it's just a part of my everyday life. (laughs) Right. And you are the chairman or chairwoman of the yes. board directors for the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. Exactly. What, what is that organization? Tell you. Well, and this just is the next piece in the story is that what we saw with these changing laws is employers' rights are being so hampered to put safety first. We are literally at a place in our country where we're putting drugs and drug use and popular drugs first over the safety concerns of the workplace. It's just quite shocking, especially when we have the Safe and Drug-Free Workplace Act that is a thing. We're just pretending like it doesn't exist, right? So um, we we recognized um, when Colorado changed their law that employers' rights were going to be massively under attack in our country. And this how we realized it was, I mean, the cannabis industry just was very transparent. Um, In the committee meetings that I sat in uh, for the implementation of Amendment 64, they were very proud and loud and saying, we will do away with workplace drug testing. It will go away. You are irrelevant to this conversation. Um, That will be our next big goal. We'll put a stop to it. And even though we have to kind of play with it in Colorado for a while, we will change these laws and these rules eventually, even if we have to do it through the courts. And, um, and so you might as well stop talking, Joe McGuire, because you're not going to be around for very long. And, and I mean, they would say these things openly, like it, it was really brazen. And Amendment 64 is a legalization of, of Colorado. Yes, marijuana. Exactly. So uh, we, we, and, and sure enough, of course, as other states have changed their laws, we've seen employers' ability to test in certain cases um, really limited. New York just passed a, a whole thing with no pre-employment testing of marijuana. Um, there's been attempts in Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and California to say it's illegal to test for THC or marijuana. And now those haven't passed yet, but um, we do believe that at some point that is a possibility. So um, anyway, a lot of people in my industry came together and said, we have got to start advocating for employers' rights to test. So um, 
I launched the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. It's a membership association for those who are in the industry. So by industry, I mean either performing workplace drug and alcohol testing, um, the labs that do the testing, the medical review officers that oversee the test results, the substance abuse professionals that evaluate people to see whether or not they have a problem, the toxicologists that, I mean, go, go so you know. Who, who are your, who are the members? Are they industry? Like, you know, McDonald's needs to check their workers? Or no, it's really or? all the people I just mentioned, the people mm-hmm. that um, are performing the tests and oversee the mm-hmm. tests. It's, it's our association to educate them. Um, and we do advocacy and all that, but, but the reason that they need a membership association, they're the ones that educate the employers on these things. You know, I always say employers are busy doing what they do best, like McDonald's or FedEx or whatever. They have a job to do. They don't have time to stop and now also become an expert in drug and alcohol testing. So it's our job to be a third party for them um, to help educate and inform and make sure that they understand um, what their policy should say, should do, how they respond to it. So it is a full time um, work and I was the founder and the founding chairwoman. And then um, when we grew, we grew very quickly. We're now the largest association in our industry. Um, yeah, it's been amazing. But the you know we were doing an executive director search, and I was actually still working in drug and alcohol testing and doing my speaking and traveling. And they came to me and said, um, "We we are looking for an executive director and." after this search for six months, would you consider um, stepping into that role? And um, it took me a minute to decide, but I I love it. I just absolutely love it. And it's, I get to be paid every day to work in my area of passion, you know, for safety. And um, so, yeah, it's working out. Awesome. That's awesome. Now, has this translated? So you're in the testing, but how has this affected industry? Are are we seeing more accidents on on the job? And are we even recording that? Like as an emergency physician, I see that. I see yes. somebody who works for a newspaper company, and I won't say who, mm-hmm. uh, delivering newspaper and and crashes a car with newspapers all over the place, and you know they were. Um, they were delivering newspapers and they were uh, high on their medical marijuana. You know, they need to be that, but yeah. you could see yeah. that that person was baked. Yes, <laughs> and nobody's going to exactly. take Right. And uh, I see uh, construction workers accidents. I mean, just the other day, a big, you know, uh, crane that kind of like blocked the, you know, the, the whole uh, road and blocked up traffic. And I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if uh... what just happened. <laughs> it really is fascinating. And I'm sure they're not even tested. We're just yeah, uh, exactly. We're just well, and that is all over the map. So your question is really, really a point of interest and contention for me in my career, because um, a decade ago, the, the uh, workers comp insurance companies would report into each state and uh, we, they still do. Um, so you can see like by industry, um, accidents versus fatalities, uh, accidents resulting in fatalities by reason. And so it would be like how many ladder falls and how many this and how many that. And I used that information for a very long time. It was reported for decades. I use that to show these are the number of accidents and injuries and fatalities that mm-hmm. take place due to employee drug and alcohol use. And we had that data. It was really, really fascinating that, and I don't think it's a coincidence, the year not. that Colorado went to legal marijuana, they stopped reporting accidents and injuries um, that were impacted by drug or alcohol use. And the excuse that was given was, um, well, that could be discriminatory against someone. So we're not going to discriminate against people by saying they were under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Now, wait a minute. There's no names involved. This is generic data. All of the data I had used for years, you could not pin down a person. It was, but it was helpful data. Well, now we cannot get that data in that way uh, for any state. So uh, colleagues in the industry and I have tried to fight this and, you know, pitch a fit about it. We're not doing it. So, so two other factors there is that it is up to the employer, whether or not they drug or alcohol test post-accident. Many of them want to, 
because they don't want all that liability on them if the test result is positive. But we are seeing more and more employers who are just refusing it and saying, we don't want to know. And it's so foolish because then all of the culpability and liability for whatever happened is on them. So that's something we try to educate about. But the other thing I will say is even though we don't have that breakdown of workers' comp by state like we used to, the the Colorado Department, I'm sorry, the U.S. Department of Labor um, has been putting out information for the last several years saying Fatal accidents and injuries are up. Workplace accidents and injuries are sky high, higher than they've been since 2008. Uh, the, the Quest Diagnostics Drug Test Index is showing greater incidence of drug test positivity than we have seen in a decade. And it's also not just marijuana, it's all drugs are increasing. So when you take that um, drug test diagnostics index along or quest uh, along with uh, what the Department of Labor is telling us. I think it's no accident that there's a direct correlation. And um, I, I wonder how much pain we're going to have to feel in our country before we make some changes. Interesting. And I learned um, some policy points uh, from you that otherwise I wouldn't have known. Um, about what you recommend to employers, for example, um, uh, not doing random drug testing, but routine drug testing. Can you tell us some like key pointers for employers as far as drug, the best uh, and gold standard for drug policies? Well, yes. First off, eliminating your drug testing program is a huge mistake because, again, that's all liability on you. Um, plus, it just completely erodes your safety, your safety rating, your safety record, um, company morale. It, it opens up other employees to vulnerability of accidents and injuries because their coworkers who choose to use, use drugs um, impact them. It also costs a ton of money, high employee turnover. There's so many things. But um, so, so as far as what to do with your policy, first of all, review it, keep it in place, enforce it. Um, those are the big three pointers. Then employers that are in states where laws are changing often ask me, can we increase the cutoff level for people because we're a legal state, they should be able to have some THC in their system. So can we just, you know, instead of the cutoff level being 15 nanograms, maybe it should be 100 nanograms and we should be able to do that. And, and uh, the reality of it is the cutoff levels are set by um, Health and Human Services and Substance and Mental Health Services Administration to rule out um, secondhand exposure. The cutoff levels prove personal use. So if you raise the cutoff levels, now you have someone testing positive and you don't know, maybe it is their roommate's weed or their wife smoking all day, every day or whatever um, that they're exposed to that caused a positive test. So when you remove the cutoff levels, your drug test doesn't mean anything. And, but a lot of people are doing it anyway. And at some point, this will come back to bite them in a court case, right? But, but it is a choice that they're making and it's a bad choice. Um, then some employers, as you mentioned, mentioned, are choosing not to do random testing, only post-accident or reasonable suspicion. And random drug testing is your greatest deterrent um, for workplace drug use. It's absolutely the gold standard, but many are making that choice. I think it's a mistake, but they are doing that. Um, some attorneys have advised, don't do random testing anymore only do reasonable suspicion. And then others hotly debate that and say, don't do reasonable suspicion, that will get you sued, only do random testing. And if someone looks like they're under the influence, just call it a random. All of that is such bad advice because there is criteria laid out for what a reasonable suspicion test is. And if you try to call that a random and cloak it as, you know, oh, this was just random test and it came up, well, any attorney worth their salt is going to say, show me the random list that was pulled and how often it's pulled and show me how that list was randomized and who else got tested, right? So it's just a bad decision. We all need to understand the signs and symptoms of drug use. And a lot of employers are required to go through that training and provide it for their supervisors and there's criteria. Uh, there's also a lot of court case history in the U.S., um, people just it, it, don't 
typically get sued for reasonable suspicion. Um, it would have to be a gross violation of reasonable suspicion, but a true reasonable suspicion test or for cause uh, stands up. It holds up. And we have decades of evidence that show that practice. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's um, it's really interesting that there is a lot of misunderstanding, misinformation and miscommunication about drug testing, how it works, especially how it works with marijuana and employers are scared and they run away and they also get intimidated by their employers. You try to tell them the way that it works and it doesn't. So I spend a lot of time educating employers on, no, you don't have a drug test positive for marijuana 30 days ago when someone used one time. They're lying to you. That's not how it works. Your physiological body can't hold on to one uh, use of marijuana for 30 days. The, the, you know, Does it store in your fat cells? Yes, but that's consistent use. And so when you get the positive test, you're looking at someone who is either used in the last 24 hours or uses regularly. Anything else is untrue. Right. And, and the issue of drugs in the workplace and accidents and, and costs, um, I think on one of your brochures, you mentioned 246 billion lost in revenue, productivity, employee turnover, medical costs, accidents, absenteeism, and even small business loss of $7,000 a month and more industrial accidents, absenteeism and injuries. That's, that's, that it was just for marijuana, but like you pointed out, that's, you have a problem with all types of drugs. Um, so I want to get to Dr. Arjun Merchant's uh, question uh, to you, our high truth expert about what about fentanyl? Um, is there a movement to include fentanyl in drug testing? Um, and, and are you seeing that um, in the workplace? We're definitely seeing it at the morgue and the medical mm -hmm. examiner office and in the emergency department. It's, it's, again, it's one of those things that's hard for us to know unless we work with our law enforcement and medical colleagues to understand what the increase is. Because generally, no, uh, we're not testing for fentanyl on a regular basis. That's not to say that no one is testing for it, but workplace, when it comes to workplace, it's not on the regular panel. So what happens is we just don't have that information to to know what all is in the system. A lot of states will do something that is um, exclusionary. So it's like if you test positive for alcohol, then that's what gets recorded. If the alcohol is negative, then you'll do a drug test. And then what's on maybe the five or 10 panel is what gets recorded, but you're not going into everything else unless it's something criminal, like you know a DUI with a fatality. So that's unfortunate because we don't really know unless it gets to that level. Now, is there movement to include fentanyl? There actually has been a huge movement um, in some ways. Uh, it's um, We're very grassroots, but a lot of requests to have DOT, the U.S. Department of Transportation, add fentanyl to their standard five panel that's been around for, again, decades, 30 years. Um, and, and to break that out because of the frequency of use and people are very concerned. One of the challenges that HHS has with that is there are a lot of different fentanyl metabolites. And so it's kind of like a, um, a few years ago when K2 spice was really big and you would, you know, you'd have like two or three metabolites that you knew you could test for, and then they would just go change the recipes. And now it's six different new metabolites and that's not in the labs can't keep up with it. Fentanyl is a little bit the same way. There's a lot of ways to spin it out and change the, the chemical nature of it, the breakdown. These are very non-scientific terms. And so getting the labs to get a test um, that narrows down what type of fentanyl metabolite they're using at the moment and then that being the only one that the users are, you know, engaging in, I mean, that test becomes obsolete so fast that DOT has had a hard time with this. And it so it doesn't look really, well, I've heard it doesn't look lightly, likely that it will happen. And then um, recently I heard it's under reconsideration because it is such a problem. So uh, I will you know, say- I was, um... 
I was on the, I, I served on the drug testing advisory board for, for SAMHSA under HSS. And because ONDCP actually, uh, by executive order, the president was in, in charge of that. And I learned about that. And several years ago, besides the federal five, the federal five mm-hmm. are um, THC, cocaine, opiates, PCP, and amphetamines. And I would like to have a federal seven adding fentanyl and benzodiazepines. Um, so they were really, at that time, they showed data um, for the Department of Defense that does extensive, that tests for everything. And they're showing the rise in fentanyl and they were thinking about, you know, should we add, you know, make it the federal six, we're adding fentanyl. And I I said, we should add fentanyl as well as benzodiazepines Yes, um, to, to all those drug screens. So, and I heard that now the Department of Defense has fentanyl, did add fentanyl to their, their drug. Yes. And they would fall under HHS. So um, if, and if, if they are able to successfully do that, then it will be much easier for DOT to add that panel because we'll have a precedent. Um, So our, our listeners know that we are doing that. We're pushing for that in San Diego and across um, um, the United States. And we even have model legislation um, to make fentanyl um, universal and automatic. That's our gold standard. And maybe we could collaborate on that, um, that fentanyl should be automatic and universal. And there are three different reagents that can be used today in every single hospital in America and include fentanyl. If, If a doctor is worried about marijuana or PCP or meth, they should equally be um, worried about fentanyl. And there's no reason that today every hospital in America can't include, you know, there's three different reagents on the market if they could get one of those. Um, and, and we have a toolkit available. I can post it on this. Yes. I would love to collaborate with you on that because it is needed. Yeah. Um, whether it's fentanyl or marijuana or any of the drugs that we were talking about, um, how do you balance a zero policy at, at work for using drugs which is important because like I said, I think drug testing is a primary prevention tool. If we want less drug problems in our country from whether it's deaths or accidents or, or heartache, um, then prevention is important and drug testing is a prevention tool. But how do you balance that with the fact that addiction is a chronic disease of the brain and people deserve second chances? That is, again, another great question. You're nailing the interview. <laughs> but it, it is, it's, that's something that's so close to my heart. Um, when I was first in this industry and we were writing policies, everything was absolutely zero tolerance. You violate the policy, you're out, you know, right? It, we are just beyond the pale of really um, having 100% of that as a recommendation. Of course, there are jobs that are so safety sensitive that that is, that is absolutely the case. Um, like your pilots. Uh, pilots have a whole other, but DOT also has a method in place to get evaluated. And, and, and DOT see. is a department of transportation. Department of transportation. Yeah. US DOT. Um, there's a, there's a plan in place, a model in place, I should say, under US Department of Transportation for evaluation, for self-reporting and to see, is this an education issue or an addiction issue? Get that person help and treatment and, and how can we return them after a certain period of time for um, random follow-up testing to make sure they're staying clean, staying in their treatment program and able to, to keep, you know, maintain their job. Sometimes that might look like a different role in the workplace, um, depending on the nature of the safety sensitivity but that is such a beautiful model. And it's really the small business owners were the ones who are more able to say, you're out of here, I'm not dealing with it. Um, move on to the next guy. Well, we are in an employment crisis right now. And that is, so we, we have the employment crisis, we have the pandemic, we have the opioid crisis that is now exploded into alcohol use, Marijuana legalization changes things. So all of these things together are this perfect storm for um, advocating for how do you write a policy? Um, Some people don't like the terminology second or third chance, but really it's compassionate employment. Mm -hmm. We know that when people are in recovery, 
They are more successful in recovery from substance use disorder when they're able to maintain full-time employment. And, and there are studies that actually suggest that people that are in recovery who are allowed to maintain their employment can be a more productive, loyal, faithful, punctual employee than those who never use substances because there's this gratitude that's engendered where they really want to show I can do this and I will do this. And they sort of recommit to being a you know productive citizen in that way. So we are we have an opioids um, crisis response committee that is educating and encouraging employers to um, to have this compassionate outcome like you're talking about let's let someone self-report if they fail a drug test let's get them evaluated let's see what we can do to keep them at work while supporting their treatment and recovery um, but also holding them accountable now that having been said there should just- always Always, always be zero tolerance for working, like for coming to work under the influence. You don't work high. You don't work stoned. You don't work drunk. You don't. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But if and when the situation presents itself where you have, you know, an occurrence, how can we respond in another way that's not out of here, see you later and making that person disposable? But I love that concept and the compassionate recovery, because now you're making drug testing, not just primary prevention, uh, but also a a way of entering people into recovery. Yes, it should never be used punitively as a weapon. Mm -hmm. And that is something that, again, it's another point of education, education, education. This is a tool um, to help, um, you know, preventatively and and to help enforce your policy but it's also those of us who are in the industry i cannot tell you how many times we have someone there who passes their drug test and sa- and cries and says thank you for helping me get sober i, I this has happened to me i one time i tested a young kid and when he when he had his negative, it was a rapid test result, but when everything came up negative, he just burst into tears. He goes, this is the first time I passed a drug test since I was 13 years old. I've been to rehab seven times and, and he could not have even been 25 years old. He was so young and he just started crying and he hugged me and, and he's like, Aww. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have had employers say, if it wasn't for your comp- your drug testing protocols, this employee of mine would have died of a heroin overdose. Uh, We hear that all the time um, of people restored. And just really quickly, I I, I do want to say, Dr. Lev, I mean, my own son who has his addiction story, you know, he got tired of being on the streets. He wanted to, you know, be able to feed himself. He went to get a job and uh, as a forklift operator and the employer said, you have to pass a drug test. And um, that was extremely instrumental in my son being able to um, to regain his functionality in society after living on the streets for a few years as as an addict. And um, to this day, he's he's now productive. He's in school. He's got a family. I, I truly believe when he would not listen to mom or dad or sister or brother or the treatment, the therapist or anybody else in his life who tried to put stop gaps in front of him, including law enforcement, it was that employer that gave him an opportunity that made a difference. So this topic for me is more than just what I do at work. It's, it's a passion that I have for my own son. Joe, I'm so happy. I was going to ask you how your son is doing. So I'm, I'm so happy that um, he's found recovery. And, and, and I mean it when I say that when I meet people who are in recovery, they're the nicest people. And again, just Absolutely. like you said, it's the gratitude. So mm-hmm. I gather from what you're saying that drug testing <clears throat> is not a weapon. It's primary prevention. It's compassionate recovery and it saves lives. hundred percent. By, by what you just showed. Um, and then can I ask you, I know that I reached out to you because I had a technical question that I, I didn't know the answer to. And I said, oh, I know someone who would know this answer. Um, someone asked me uh, what, a, what uh, they asked me when I was giving a lecture, have you heard of Delta 8 and what's going on with Delta 8? And I'm like, I don't know. I got to look it up. Um, apparently there was a Delta 8 
THC, mm-hmm. uh, different than the usual uh, Delta 9 THC, and that just skirts the drug testing. So um, can you tell us about that? At this point, it can skirt the drug test um, to a degree. Um, but, but some, so there's a mixture of, of truth and non-truth in there. So kind of break it down a little bit, by the way, my industry is having a conference in two weeks and there's a chief toxicologist for clinical reference laboratory. That's going to do an entire workshop on Delta eight. And so I might have much more information for you in just two weeks, but, um, talking to the, uh, speaking with the toxicologists in my industry, what they've all said is, you know, the cannabis industry is going out there and saying, take these products loaded with Delta eight, you can't get high, you can't fail a drug test, and it's totally safe. I even had a young person in my family come to me with this and so excited to inform me, um, because this is what they hear at the retail store when they go buy their product. Um, And the reality of it is, you can get high, you do get high, it's not a non high, um, by any means. Um, Number two, uh, Sure, Delta-8, it's not that it doesn't show up in a drug test. It's that we're not testing for it. We're testing for the Delta-9 metabolite, not the Delta-8. So, um, you know, that could always change. But at the moment, that is true. However, the fact that the chance that you're getting a product that's not contaminated with Delta-9 or combined with it um, is so relatively low that you're still going to fail for the Delta nine. Um, so it's, there's, there's some myth and some truth in there. We're not going to test for Delta eight at this moment in time. Um, but the Delta nine is still going to be a part of what you're using in all likelihood. That's one of the problems, as you all know, that we have with all of these CBD or cannabidiol products all over the nation is that they say hundred percent CBD no THC or THC free, you know, you can't get high this, that, and the other. And then, you know, uh, the, the CDC, the FDA releases all this information that in tests done nationally, the majority of them are tainted with, with THC and THC rich in fact. So I always say, always. I see that that in the emergency department where people ask, can, do you ever see cases of people poisoned from CBD? And well, actually, as of recently, I would say no, uh, except I've seen plenty of people who think they're using CBD <laughs> and, they, and they're there because it's po- they're positive for THC and they didn't know. Exactly. And they're shocked that mm. they came up positive for THC. And often there's outcomes like they lose their jobs or their medical insurance won't cover the injury that that happened as a result of the use. And so now they're having to pay cash or whatever. But I always say all of these products are buyer beware, use at your own risk. You do not know what's in them. The labeling is not overseen by the FDA uh, and cannot be because it's illicit. So it, it is, comp- it, you're rolling the dice and you're not going to have a winning day um, after and, a long period. Of, and actually you. any of their um, herbal medicines and you, you, you can go to, you know, target CVS, a grocery store, and you want to buy vitamin E or D or whatever, uh, zinc that you want to get for your COVID. If you don't see a USP label, a standards label, there's no guarantee of what you're buying. Right. Um, but, but if you see oh, right. that seal, then you know that there's, you know, there's some, you know, oversight. Um, but there, otherwise there is not any oversight of all those type of products that, that, that consumers are buying. Right, right. All the way. And then um, one of the things that I, I th- thought was interesting when I was on um, on the working with the SAMHSA folks and the drug testing experts is all the ways people cheat. Oh my <laughs> on gosh. Their, on their drug scene. And, and a significant time um, of the meeting was spent on um, how do the labs overcome and detect all these various cheating methods and and what and even have what percentage of urines were actually fake urines that um, that were produced. Can you tell us some of the interesting ways people? Oh my goodness. There are so many and they're just always growing. I mean, there's the standard, you know, I'm going to go and and buy the, um, the little yellow bottle at the local head shop or whatever, and they'll try that. A good, what's a local bottle? Like fake the, urine? The local, it's just a synthetic urine and, and oh. most of the head shops sell it. There's you can buy a, it on Amazon. 
Oh yeah, you could buy it on Amazon. You can buy yeah. it anywhere. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people keep that in in the glove box of their car or whatever um, for just in case. The problem that those present most of the time is getting them to body temperature. And so we'll when we get a cold specimen, um, we know that that's a fake specimen. And we hear all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. It's also sad, but we yeah. could entertain each other all day with. Uh, I had a young girl tell me one time, I've peed cold my whole life. And I'm like, not at 70 degrees. You don't. <laughs> no, that's not a thing. I'm sorry. Um, so they will, they will, I mean, people will burn themselves trying to heat them up because they'll put them in a microwave and then put it against their skin to maintain the temperature. And then they got a scald mark on them. You know, there, there's all kinds of things that happen. Um, but now we have, and there's a lot of myth on the internet. Like if you buy this solution and you drink it 24 hours before your oh, test, yeah. it'll clean everything out. But, but I will say, if you read the fine print, a lot of them will say, this will not work unless you actually abstain from the drug for 30 days prior to your test, which means you don't have drugs in your system. <laughs> so, so a lot of, read the fine print, a lot of them will say that. There's uh, products that claim to be a shampoo that will strip your hair so you can't um, fail a hair test. None of those work. They're all fake. We test the inside shaft of the hair, not the external hair. Um, we wash that product out. Um, there are even products out there that have things like uh, false prosthetic devices that people will fill with urine. Oh, I saw those. Those are yes, fun. Strapped to their bodies. Um, I mean, all over the place. And people do silly things. I was working for a drug testing company based out of Alaska. And I will never forget this one. A guy came to me, he goes, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. He was my employee. And um, he says, we had a guy who, uh, he was making all this noise in the bathroom and he wouldn't open the door. And I would say, sir, you know, you're going to have to show me what's going on. I hear that you're trying to interfere with the test. So he said, eventually I opened the door and um, the, the guy had filled the bladder of a camelback um, backpack. So, you know, those kinds that you put in your mouth and you sip on the water while you're hiking. Yeah. He had pulled the bladder out. He had filled it with urine and had someone tape it to his back. And he was trying to disconnect it and get it off of his back so that he could put the urine in the cup. And I said, but how was he going to get it out once he got it off of his back? And he's like, I don't want to know. I said, I don't either. <laughs> so, I mean, people try all kinds of things and um, often they're detected, uh, you know, especially if it's a really well-trained collector, they, they become detected. So, but they do try. They, and they, I mean, people, there's a lot of urban myth about how to cheat your drug test that is just absolutely false. Not that nobody ever gets through because they're <laughs> constantly improving the products. And if you pay a lot of money, I mean, you have to pay an extreme amount of money and then get the specimen to temperature and stuff. Um, some of them do get through, but they're costly. And it's so much easier just to be drug-free. <laughs> Although we know addiction is, is difficult. So True. a lot easier said than done. But I love that, you know, it's an opportunity for compassionate recovery and saving lives. Absolutely. And what about secondhand, you know, smoke? Okay, wait, you know, yeah, I'm positive. That's because my roommate. Yes. So as long as the cutoff levels are respected that we spoke of earlier, um, no, your, your lab-based drug test, and I'm really emphasizing lab-based, not a, not a rapid test that someone got off of the internet, um, but a lab-based drug test rules out that secondhand exposure and proves ingested amount of the metabolite present in the system. So when I say metabolize, that's not just surface right? And that's why we have those cutoff levels. And uh, so, yes. And can you second, tell us about that? What are the cutoff levels now? Yes. So um, I know for THC, um, it's 50 nanograms in the screening test and then 15 nanograms for the, the confirmation test, the GCMS. Um, so, uh, you know, that I don't have them all memorized for all the other drugs of abuse at this point in time, because I'm not doing the drug tests every day. I'm sitting at my desk um, teaching. So if, if, but if you have 50 nanograms, mm -hmm. that means you didn't have secondhand smoke. 
Well, so that's in the screening test. That's the 50. If we get a 50 in the screening test, then we know something's there and we need to have further testing. Then it goes for a different process for a confirmation test. And if you come out over 15 nanograms, then that is an ingested amount um, that is present in your system. So mm -hmm. right now that cutoff level for THC for U.S. Department of Transportation testing is 15.15. That's and then, why so and that means that means it's not second. That that's confirmed. Correct. That's not, and we're that's you can't argue with that. If you have 15, Correct. that's not from secondhand. So, okay. Yeah, that's why it's concerning when employers say, "Well, what if we just make the cutoff level 100, which is kind of like the favorite number that I hear?" Mm -hmm. Well, really, from 15 to 100, what are you even talking about? And do you know? And are you a toxicologist? And scientifically, what does that mean? And they look at me and go. Well, I thought you would know. I like, well, I'm not a toxicologist. So no, I don't know. And, you know, um, so we have to be careful about those decisions because those things matter. And then what about say, okay, yeah, I was 50, but I have a medical marijuana card and I need it for my whatever disease. At this point in time, all that is, is an admission that you use pot. A medical marijuana card matters nothing. So an, a medical review officer that reviews the results and, um, so, for instance, if you have a an actual legitimate prescription medication um, and you fail your drug test, it goes to the medical review officer before your employer sees it. You give the verification of your prescription medication to the medical review officer. They interview you, um, like if it's an opiate, maybe you had Vicodin or something, and they go, okay, you had this prescription um, I see that you the, the amount in your system is consistent with what you've been prescribed. Um, and, and so therefore, as far as the employer knows, they get a negative drug screen because there was a valid prescription in play that, that was medically necessary and verified. So the employer gets a negative, okay? And this happens a lot with some of your like anxiety meds and things like that. Um, However, if that happens to you with your medical marijuana card, uh, the medical review officer at this point in time has no valid reason to consider that it's not considered a medication in our country. Medical marijuana is a marketing term. It's just pot. Yes. That's what I say. I, I, it's, I, it's not a marketing term. It's an insult to my profession. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yes. So that matters nothing. If you have a medical marijuana card, it's just an admission that you um, use marijuana and it doesn't help you or excuse anything away. Um, pot is pot is pot. Wow. That's true. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe, so much we could talk about, about different yes. drugs and cutoffs and things. Um, you are a podcast host yourself. So, you know, yes. I, I want my listeners to, to be able to find you. Two podcasts. You're Two, actually, yes. Yeah. One is work and one is fun. Um, the work one is the Indesa Members Memo, and Indesa is N-D-A-S-A. And that's for National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association, but that's a long title for a podcast. So it's the Indesa Members Memo, and that drops every Wednesday. And it is all kinds of industry information, um, newsy updates. I have a whole series on marijuana and drug testing, which is awesome. Um, and, and I interview people in our industry. We tell some of the stories you got to hear today and our experiences. And um, it's not all regulatory. Sometimes that slips in, but it's really a lot of fun to do. And then my, um, my uh, recreational podcast, I guess, is uh, one that I've been doing with my daughter for about a year. And their mom and daughter talks. And it's so fun. And it's called Don't Call Your Mother Dude. And we just talk about... Dude. Anything and everything. Yeah, dude. And um, we also, at the beginning of our um, podcast in 2020, we told our story of family addiction and how that impacted us as a mom and a daughter and how it really separated us and, um, you know, what it did to our family and that journey. And we, we did a series um, on that story. So it, we touch serious topics sometimes, but she also makes me laugh until I sound like Motley the dog. And so that's always fun. <laughs> 
That is great. Um, so I, I encourage my uh, listeners to, to check your two podcasts out and we'll give that information to us and we'll put it on, on the show notes. And you also have a, a thing called five minutes of courage. Yes. And that is my, um, my business where I do the traveling and the speaking. So you can find me at joemcguire.org and uh, just search in your uh, search engine, joemcguire.org or um, marijuana, true marijuana facts is another way to find it. But um, yeah, for five minutes of courage, I get requested to travel and speak on the impact of um, legal marijuana to the workplace. And I do some policy writing workshops. I also will talk about the impact of families and children. And I, I've just done a variety of things. It's, it's kind of expanded into um, vaping and even recently how families coping with substance abuse in the home, um, how that impacts the workplace when the employer has, you know, a mother like myself dealing with a loved one with substance use disorder, how does that impact work performance and what can they do to support their employees? So it's, um, it's just a true delight to have the opportunity to share that with people in that way. And yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And uh, I, I have a tip for you as well as our listeners. Um, of, uh, you may want to connect your Five Minutes of Courage with a new organization. We're going to have a press release on it May 20th. And the new organization um, that I helped found is called the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Isaac, oh. And we're a group of doctors educating on marijuana or cannabis, whatever you want to call it. And our website is isaac1.org. So check it out because you may want to link to it. I, I know you're going to want to link to it. Yes. Because part of it has a medical library designed for the public. So I took medical literature, translated it into everyday speak with like little talking points. And each time you, you could look up autism, addiction, withdrawal, emergency visits, violence, environment. And then when you look at that, you'll see medical articles translated into layman language, uh, as well as a link to the actual original literature. So that really, is fabulous. It's, I think it's a, I mean, I'm proud of it because I put it together, but um, I think it's a great resources to anybody. I had a, um, a patient yesterday and she was a college student. I said, hey, can I show you something? And I said, here, use this. I want you to use it to write a paper in school. You're going to get an A. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is again, I mean, I thanked you up top for this podcast, but for that work that you're doing, it's been a need for so long. Um, people are always asking me, where do I go to find the the medical research? Um, you know, it's confusing because they'll get something from me and it's cited in source, but they'll get something from, um, you know, the marijuana industry that has quote citations and sources, which are all their own personal blogs, but the general layman doesn't know that. And, and especially kids, you're right, that are writing papers. Well, their stuff is cited in source and your stuff is, well, it's different when it's SAMHSA or <laughs> .gov. I, or I, I would love to have your, um, you know, after, after this, if you look at yes. it and, and give me feedback, or if you think that something needs to be added um, yes. and, and um, you know, whatever, I'm, you know, our whole audience and you included can go and sign up and get our usual, you know, whatever mm -hmm. um, information and join our membership for Isaac International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis. So, I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm excited. Measure. This is this is brand new because we haven't gone public yet, but it'll be out by the time this airs. So yay, yay, yay. <laughs> um, and, uh, do you have advice for Dr. Arjun Merchant, who called in with a great question on fentanyl? Or you know, I, I would say it is if you suspect that you are having a problem with fentanyl or you're in an area where there's increased use, invest in your lab testing to add the fentanyl panel. Most labs can do it. It might make a little bit more of a bump in the cost of your drug test, but it's well worth it to save a life. Um, I would also recommend that if you suspect that's something happening in your um, in your workplace, then get your 
get your staff trained on the use of uh, naloxone. And, um, you know, to me as the mother of an addict, I know a lot of people have opinions about naloxone, but in my opinion, if that will give that individual one more chance um, to get clean and, and get their life back on track, then let's give them that chance. Uh, but you can always add, I believe you can add fentanyl or find a lab that will uh, until it is more of a commonality on the panel. Right. And we have that fentanyl testing toolkit for anybody who's interested on how to um, get fentanyl uh, into your hospital. It's not available in clinics, but every hospital in America can be doing that today. And I'll, I'll put it on the show notes on how, how to do that. So, and with naloxone on my website, hightruths.org, if anybody needs a prescription anywhere in the country, if you can't get it from your doctor or from the pharmacist, you can download a free prescription on, on our website. That's awesome. I keep a kit in my office and I just always have it with me. So thank you for that. Yeah. If you have anybody who needs that too, Joe, feel free to pass that on. Thank you. And I want to say thank you to Dr. Arjun Merchant, which I had a wonderful, delightful shift working with in the emergency department. Um, I wish you, Dr. Merchant, much success in your medical career. Medicine is a calling, really a special profession where every day you make a difference in someone's life. And Joe, what a delight to have you on High Truths as our expert. And I really thank you for all the work that you're doing, um, educating, doing prevention work, uh, being brave in an important voice on the issue and complacency in, in marijuana in America. And, uh, you know, and I look forward to collaborating in the future together. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.